1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, December 17th, and I'm Kristen Baird Adams, President of the City Club Board of Directors and Chief of Staff of PNC's National Regional President Organization. I'm pleased to welcome you to the City Club's exit interview with Dave Abbott, President of the George Gunn Foundation, who retires at the end of this year. Established in 1952, the George Gunn Foundation funds programs that enhance our understanding of the physical and social environments in which we live and increase our ability to cope with its ever-changing requirements. To date, the George Gunn Foundation's commitments have totaled more than $816 million, including, under Abbott's leadership, numerous organizations addressing the most pressing issues here in Cleveland. Today's forum is the Norman A. Sugarman Memorial Forum on Philanthropy in America, as well as the James S. Lipscomb Memorial Forum on Philanthropic Spirit and Community Leadership. Both Norm Sugarman and James Lipscomb were remarkable leaders in philanthropy here and across the nation. And Lipscomb himself was the first executive director of the George Gunn Foundation, So it's certainly fitting that we'll hear from Dave Abbott, who is leaving the helm of Gund more than 60 years after Lipscomb was hired. A graduate of Denison University who holds a master's in journalism and a law degree from Harvard University, before joining the Gund Foundation, Dave served as president of University Circle, executive director of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum, and executive director of the Cleveland Bicentennial Commission. Dave also served as Cuyahoga County Administrator, playing a key role in the creation of the Gateway Project and early in his career as a reporter for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. On a personal note, for all of us here at the City Club, Dave Abbott and his wife, Jan Roller, past City Club Board President, are longstanding supporters of this great institution which proudly serves as the nation's longest standing, continuous free speech forums, renowned for our tradition of civil civic dialogue, debate, and discussion. I could go on, but it's clear that Dave has worked in just about every part of this community, making catalytic changes across the city and the region. Working, of course, to make our great city and our country better for all. So what are the lessons of, this, of his storied tenure, and what does he see as the opportunities and the challenges for Cleveland's next generation of leadership, including his successor, Anthony Richardson? In conversation today is Randy McShepherd, Vice President of Public Affairs and Chief Talent Officer for RPM International, and I must note, one of the many of us who have been inspired by Dave's leadership over the years. He and Dave have worked together for decades, starting with the Bicentennial Commission in 1994, where Dave hired Randy to work alongside him. Members, friends, and guests of the City Club, please join me in welcoming Dave Abbott and Randy McShepherd.
2: All right, well, good afternoon, City Club. Good and good afternoon, Dave Abbott. Good afternoon, Randy. You feeling okay? I feel great. How about you? Fantastic. Uh, we'll jump right into this. I do want to go back to the very beginning for you. Uh, I understand you grew up in Fremont, Ohio, and uh, I wanted to know what exactly brought you to Cleveland. Was it the plain dealer job or did you always have aspirations of moving to Cleveland?
0: No, it was the plain dealer job. Uh, when I got out of journalism school I actually hitchhiked around the country for most of a summer looking for a job among other things and uh, the place I got a job was here in Cleveland so that's what brought me to Cleveland, fell in love with Cleveland uh, during that brief journalism career and one thing led to another and here I am. Wonderful. Speaking of uh, falling in love with Cleveland in a
2: recent conversation, Dave, you mentioned a name uh, of a gentleman, Jim Flanagan from The Plain Dealer and uh, you talked about how he piqued your interest in Cleveland. Please uh, share a bit more about that.
0: Sure. Uh, When I first came to The Plain Dealer, my Uh, work week started at 6 p.m. on Friday. And I worked from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. And I had Wednesdays and Thursdays as my day off. And here I was, new in town. This is not a great way to get to know a community. Uh, Everyone's leaving for the weekend. I'm just starting. And uh, my job was was called Night Rewrite. And I took notes over the phone from reporters who were out covering fires and disasters and murders and things and wrote the stories up and my editor was uh, this guy named Jim Flanagan who sat about 10 feet away from me and he was quite an intimidating fellow. He was probably 6'3", fairly heavy, bald head, rimless glasses, suspenders, straw hat. I mean he was right out (laughs) of of a movie (laughs) and uh, he yelled a lot and uh, at 11 p.m., which was when I got to take a break and go get lunch, he was getting off work. And there used to be a bar at 17th and Superior called The Headliner. And we'd go over there, and Jim would, and I would sit at the bar, and I would say virtually nothing. And he would talk and tell stories about Cleveland, about, you know, just all the crazy stuff that happens <laughs> in a city. And, I, you know, I'm a little emotional about it because I think back, you know, Jim died just a couple of years later. And I never really had a chance to tell him what an impact he had on me. But that was my education about Cleveland before I was even able to get out on the streets of Cleveland and really be a reporter. And after about six months of that, I finally was. But he made a profound effect on me because he gave Cleveland this sort of romantic quality despite the fact that he was talking about all of these terrible things that reporters tended to cover, but he made—you know—he made, you know, he made a, uh, a big influence on me. He was also a real mentor in terms of writing and learning how to write under uh, deadline pressure. And uh, okay. as I mentioned, he—he he passed away while I was still at the Plain Dealer, even though I was only there less than four years. But that was—that uh, was my Cleveland 101. Fantastic.
2: Well, thank you to Jim for that. Um, so you left the plane dealer, went to law school, came back, and took the job as county administrator.
0: Uh, not immediately. I uh, worked in, in Boston after law school for uh, Congressman Barney Frank on his huh? reelection campaign. I was his communications director, and then we intended to come back to Cleveland. And Jan will say that I dragged her kicking and screaming, but not oh. I, not really, not really. <laughs> but the um, so we came back and my intent was to practice law. But in the election of 1982, uh, Tim Hagan was elected as a Cuyahoga County Commissioner. And I knew Tim from when I was a reporter and one of his brothers was a great friend of mine. And Tim called me and said, how about working for me for a year? And so I worked as Tim Hagan's administrative assistant two years uh, in Cuyahoga County Government, and then at the end of that two years, I became the County Administrator. So there was that interim period.
2: Fantastic. So tell the everyday Joe and Jane in the audience, uh, what is it like being the County Administrator?
0: Huh. Well, uh, that was by far the hardest job I've ever had. Uh, I spent about eight and a half years in that role. And that is kind of like chief of staff or chief operating officer. It's that kind of role. There are three elected commissioners who appoint the administrator and you then oversee the uh, bureaucracy that is uh, handling a whole host of programs heavily in the human services. And uh, that's a really tough 24/7 job where you are, where everybody is your boss and you are uh, faced with a multitude of demands that uh, are very tough to meet under best of circumstances, but we tried and did the best we could, and I actually think while I was there, I'd like to think that county government functioned fairly effectively, but I was an actual critic, a severe critic of the form of government that Cuyahoga County used to operate under because it was so diffused. There were so many other elected office holders that it was virtually impossible to set a budget and then use the budget as a management tool because all these elected officeholders would ignore you and uh, it was a real challenge to try to uh, make things work. So when it came time for the uh, issue before the voters to change the form of government to an elected executive and council and get rid of most of the other office holders, the elected office holders, I was for it, not because of the corruption scandal, which actually you know, precipitated the issue and led most voters to support it. I was for it because it was just a wildly inefficient form of government when you could not really manage uh, the budget the way uh, you wanted to, the way anybody would want to. It would be as if you told the mayor of Cleveland, yeah, okay, you're mayor, but take half your cabinet. They're now going to be elected, and they get their own budgets, and they get to do whatever they want. Hmm. That's kind of what county government used to be like. Wow. And so um, I'm glad that changed. But that I mean, it was a hell of an education for me. Uh, it was one way in which I got into uh, the community and very deeply in many different aspects. And... Um, I hope I did a halfway decent job at it.
2: Well, you you would never say this, but um, I remember talking with you over 20 years ago about how complicated the deal was to, to figure out Gateway, and how there were very uh, difficult moments, and um, some would argue you're an unsung hero. But but say, just say a little bit about your role in uh, the Gateway deal.
0: Well, Tom Chem is here, <laughs> who, who led that effort in the... Uh, uh, Tom and I joked more than once, I think, after it was done, that we should write a book about it. But if we did, we'd both have to leave town. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's some truth to that. I mean, the uh, you know deals like that are complicated under the best of circumstances, and they have debatable aspects certainly. Uh, but it was uh, it was one of those things that died a thousand deaths along the way. You know, should it be a baseball stadium? Should it be an arena? we have to have both. What else is involved? Dealing with the team owners, dealing with the various political forces. It was, uh, you know, enormously challenging. One of the interesting things about it was that Mike White, who was the mayor at the time, was an advocate for it, but uh, he, he, I would say, prioritized the arena over the ballpark. And uh, Tim Hagan, who at the time was president of the Board of County Commissioners, and of course who I worked with very closely, also supported it. But he sort of tended to lean a little more toward the ballpark. And there was, a, there was always some tension, is there enough money to do both? Does it make sense? And it was, just, it was highly complicated. And there was a relationship forged between those two that was enormously beneficial for this community in various ways. The, at the start of that pro- process, they basically hated each other they had just they had just run for mayor against oh, each other right. yeah. and said bad things about each other <laughs> in the course of the campaign and yet that project brought them together because they saw mutual benefit for the community and for their and themselves they thought that we could do something with it and that had benefit in dealing with homelessness with dealing with human services more broadly uh, in ways that people don't realize, but because the county and the city worked together well, and that, and that relationship, in the case of those two guys, was forged by the gateway process. As tough as it was, and as many deaths as it died along the way, it would not have happened without either of them, and it would not have happened without them coming together. And uh, it was—it was really that was a remarkable thing to be a part of and to see, actually. And I wish that uh, we saw more political marriages like that in our very fragmented political environment that we live in here in Northeast Ohio, because uh, you can do things when that happens.
2: Very good. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, So you and I met when I joined the Cleveland Bicentennial Commission uh, 25, 26 years ago. Um, I'd like you first of all to maybe Say to the audience what the bicentennial commission was, since um, some were just youngsters uh, when when that even happened. But uh, besides all of the wonderful coworkers that you had there, I'd like you to talk about. <laughs> I'd like you to talk about your fondest memory of the bicentennial commission.
0: Well, the bicentennial was a celebration of Cleveland's uh, birth in in 1796. So it was you know 1996 was the celebration, and I was hired in 1993 to plan, put together, and then execute it. And I would. Want to point out Dick Pogue, who was here, who along with Bob Gillespie were the two co-chairs of the bicentennial commission, which Mayor White appointed and, and uh, said, "Go do this," and it was an amazing four-year project. Uh, yeah. I think we made a number of good decisions. There is no better one that I made than hiring you, Randy. I mean, that was oh. that was really uh, <laughs> to pay you now. <laughs> No, really, I, I mean, that's paid off in so many ways, not just for the Bicentennial, but it helped then launch you into it did. everything you've done since, which has been so valuable to Cleveland. And um, I remember, uh, well, I turned the job down at least twice, maybe three times before I decided to do it because I didn't think it was something I would be interested in. It frankly didn't seem serious enough or for me. And so only when in talking to, to Dick and Bob and the mayor about about it, did I uh, agree when they said we could make it much more than a party. And so all the stuff you worked on, on in neighborhoods and, and trying to uh, get kids involved and the community involved in different ways. Yes, we threw one hell of a party, but we also did a lot of other things with the bicentennial, and including uh, bringing city year to Cleveland, which then is where Je- uh, Randy went to work after the bicentennial, and you know that was what that was a tremendous thing. But I, you ask, I don't know if I have a single uh, favorite memory because there were just so many, many of which were kind of uh, challenging, shall we say, <laughs> uh, like during the big birthday party in uh, July of 1996. It was down in the flats for those who may recall. Some of you may have been there, three days down on the river with the orchestra and many other activities and. Oh, I see Sherry is over here. <laughs> Sherry also yeah. worked with us. <laughs> and uh, there had been a giant pile of coal placed at the mouth of the river for the benefit of a power plant. And that was done just before the bicentennial. And they told us we couldn't shoot off fireworks because it was going to, remember this? I do. And, the, uh, and so we had, it, it was a nightmare. I mean, we had to figure out a way to, to deal with it, including you know, having a fire boat and having uh, extra guards, extra insurance, and all of this. And damn, if on the first night of fireworks one piece didn't land in this coal pile <laughs> and start a fire. <laughs> and I, I thought, oh, this is a nightmare. You know, we're going to, you know, because they told us once a fire starts, it will burn for six months. It, you know, it's not going to just, you can't just put it out. But the firefighters got up there and they, watered it down and amazingly they did put it out and they decided okay you can keep doing fireworks but I was like you know there there as you know there were a million stories like that during the bicentennial about how uh, how kept us up at night didn't it very good (laughs) but it was fun (laughs) (laughs) there you go
2: Um, so as was uh, highlighted in the video that was shown for the audience here before the program started our listeners would not know that you are a man that has been affectionately referred to as steely-eyed bastard. (laughs) Can you
0: tell us what that's all about? I've never understood it, and it's heartbreaking. (laughs) Well, uh, another colleague of ours at the Bicentennial, Ann Zoller, I don't know if Ann's here, but Ann uh, is clever in many ways, and she began calling me names, just in the normal course of conversation. I mean, that's just sort of how Anne is. She started you know, calling me names, one of which was Steely-Eyed Bastard, and which uh, stuck. And she explained that I had a tendency, which I've been told since by many others, when talking to people, I tend to listen intently, and I just look them in the eye and listen. And apparently, it can be intimidating. I don't mean to be. I actually don't mean to be, but I've been told that I am, and so... It's what made
2: Jan fall in love with you, though. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's
0: right. (laughs) So not all is lost. I mean, uh, mean, so Steely-Eyed Bastard (laughs) is something that stuck. And frankly, I've used it to my advantage, too. Yeah, there you go. Once I figured that out, I thought, oh, okay. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Very good. Well, I'm sure um, looking around the room at some people that care deeply about this community and spend days and nights wrestling with the challenges they'd love to hear how you would describe the
0: state of the community in Cleveland mm. today. Well, it's a mixed bag, as it almost always is, that, you know, there are uh, some areas in which I think we've made progress, others in which we had not, uh, and we all know there's certainly a lot of work to be done. Uh, Policy Bridge, which you had, has uh, come out with a new urban agenda, which deserves attention, that, uh, and I hope the new mayor does that, even though it certainly cannot be an agenda owned only by the mayor, right. it must be owned by everybody. And you know, we are in some ways masters of our own fate and in other ways not, and that has a lot to do with where we are and where we're going. That you know, we have made smart investments over time in some areas, like some of the medical facilities, for instance, that uh, fuel a lot of our economy today and are likely to keep doing that in a, in a major way. But in other areas, we are behind, like uh, we got into investments in technology uh, far too late compared to other communities. And we have not invested in ourselves in uh, the degree, to the degree that we really ha- uh, should have and must going forward, because uh, we are in global competition. And when we compete with the rest of the world, we compete through all of you and everybody else who isn't here. and the. Yeah. Uh, our workforce, our people, they are our team that we have on the field in global competition. And there are too many of our teammates who aren't able to play in the game because they don't have the skills or they don't have the uh, uh, simple education or they are discriminated against and are not given the opportunities or they are victims of the discrimination that has been uh, sadly a part of our society since its founding and have not been able to overcome uh, the legacy of that. And we all know that's true. Well, we have to be more serious about attacking it and about uh, overcoming it if we are going to succeed in global competition and have the kind of lives that we want. And I'm not just talking about the uh, black and brown members of our community who are victimized by uh, our history, but I'm talking about all of us because if anybody can't participate, we all suffer. It's, it's to all of our detriment. And uh, so we have to be more serious about that. And that's a whole set of issues, many of them ca- covered in your new agenda. And uh, we're, we just have to be uh, aggressive about it. But that is not all that it takes because we do not exist in a vacuum. Uh, Our region competes against every other region in the world, but we do so in a global context. And so climate change is affecting everybody and everything, and it's only going to get worse. And we have to be consciously thinking about our place in that changing environment and what we can do or contribute to uh, addressing it, but also how to adapt to it and use it to our advantage. The racial inequity that continues to exist in our society, and, and in Cleveland certainly, uh, is a problem that is not just ours, but because of its, the way it has infected our politics and our ability to address issues uh, or even to have civil conversations, uh, I think is yep. a huge problem that affects our ability as a community to deal with our problems because we have to do it in, in a partnership, if possible, with. State policymakers with national policymakers, and right now uh, that's not going too well. Uh, it's yeah. a it's it's a little better than it was not long ago, but not enough. And then uh, the f- state of our democracy is so fraught, so perilous. Our ability to to address anything is at risk, and it and it is simply wrong to think that race and racism does not have a lot to do with the state of our politics because that has infected uh, the thinking of far too many people and they are distorting our democracy and using the power that they have in every way possible, in part, not wholly, but in part, to make the advantage that white people have held in this country since the beginning permanent, despite the changing demographics of our country. and no matter you know no matter what poli- political party you're a member of what side you're on, uh, that you can't deny that. I mean that is just evident when you look at the at not only our history but what is happening today. I thought when uh, in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder there was a moment when people recognized that disparity, that inequity, that injustice, and that people were prepared to deal with it. But there's been a terrible backlash since then, a white backlash against it, and it shows up in our politics very starkly. And and we see it uh, in the denial of the outcome of the 2020 election, and we see it in the efforts to distort politics on a state-by-state basis to make it harder for people to vote, and that means mostly black and brown people and poorer people, and in order to uh, maintain political advantage and power. And that might seem like something way beyond our capacity as a community to deal with, but we are part of that. We are victimized by it. We must participate in every effort to change that. And so when we think about Cleveland, we think about uh, the issues we face, you must do it in that context of what's happening in Columbus, what's happening in Washington and how we can use whatever we're doing here to try to influence what is done there. And it's, it is a perilous moment for us right now, for us as a community, for us as a society, for us as a democracy. And I'm not sure which way it's going to go. And so we, have to, uh, we really have to apply ourselves to that fight. We, we must, and that's the kind of talk
2: that had people wanting you to run for mayor, see? Uh, so. <laughs> But, but well, well said. I couldn't agree with you more, Dave. Um, as a follow up to that question, um, you know, here in Cleveland, we are experiencing a sea change in terms of new leaders. There's a, a new mayor, uh, we'll have a new county executive. Um, we've heard about uh, retirements coming up, uh, ranging from Augie Napoli at United Way to Dr. Johnson at Tri C to Dr. Boutros at Metro Health. I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, I guess. Uh, The question is, what are your thoughts about the changing of the Guard, and what advice would you have for the new leaders that will be be taking over the
0: helm of these various organizations? Well, uh, the first thought is that I don't think any of us should be surprised by it. It's just the way of life, the baby boomer generation is passing the torch, as we must and should. Uh, It's just one of those things, you know, we've all reached a certain age where, uh, you know, it's time to move on and let younger people take over. It doesn't mean that I or others necessarily are leaving town or leaving the community or leaving public engagement. I certainly am not, Uh, but I think it's a great thing that there is new blood, new voices, new uh, outlooks coming into uh, these roles and more diverse uh, perspectives and people too. Uh, So I think that uh, I think it's a very exciting time in that respect and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, We obviously have a new mayor, who I think is gonna bring a level of energy and excitement and frankly, an outward looking view that I think is really important. And although I don't think it's gonna be a big change at the Gun Foundation, I'm really excited that Tony Richardson, who's there with us today oh, is. Tony. Tony, as many of you know, is currently the executive director of the Nord Family Foundation out in Lorain County, and so he's very familiar with Cleveland, and they do work in Cleveland uh, as well as Lorain County and elsewhere. Uh, I'm very excited Tony's coming in, and uh, I know he won't skip a beat in terms of what the foundation needs to do. And and that's not to say they're going to do exactly what I would do. It's, you know, there'll be an, uh, an evolution and change that that's the way it should be. Yes. Uh, but I feel great that it's in his hands and the, and in the hands of the staff that is there, because they are just a tremendous group of people. Fantastic. And um, the board. I, must, I can't, the can't board, forget the, the board. Can't forget the board. That's right. Yeah. Um,
2: is there any unfinished business, Dave Abbott, that you will ruminate
0: about in your re- retirement? It's, it's all unfinished. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, uh, I tell the staff, uh, we do the hard stuff. And... That hard stuff is not done. You know, the, the issues of climate change and racial injustice and democracy, it is not done.
2: Unfortunately. Um, I did want to ask a question about your uh, leadership style that I think would be helpful for the audience. Um, I we pers- already talked
0: about Steel Admaster.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I promise we won't go back to that. but. No, I remember you as a, a hands-off boss who had no problem giving a lot of responsibility to a young group of professionals that worked with you at the Bicentennial Commission. And since then, you've done things like start the uh, fellow program, fellowship program at the Gunn Foundation, which really was all about identifying and sort of uh, engaging young leaders. And uh, can you give your philosophy or vision about le- developing young leaders?
0: Well, I've always believed that the best thing you can do in, in positions like mine have been to, is to hire good people and then get out of their way and uh, let them do their work. If they're good people, I mean, to give them uh, guidance and direction to the extent needed, but uh, hopefully as little of that as necessary. They're all nodding their heads back here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so they probably think I've done too much uh, guidance. But um, yeah, I mean, good people will do good work. and. Uh, so that has always been my philosophy, and I apply that to younger people, too. I am, of all the things I've done at the foundation, the fellowship is probably the thing I'm proudest of because it's created this pipeline uh, and cadre of great young people, some of whom are here today, to uh, learn from the foundation, learn how we work, what we do, but then also about the nonprofit community and the community more broadly. And they've all gone on to do great things, uh... alicia washington has come back to join us on the staff of the foundation and but they're all doing great things mostly in cleveland a couple have gone elsewhere but not too many and most of them are in cleveland making uh... positive contributions and so i think by just you know showing them how we work and showing them the opportunities uh... they were all smart enough to realize they could take advantage of it and so my my philosophy as i said has been to you know look for good people but then give them fairly limited guidance. And certainly, you were uh, among that group, Randy, that uh, took it and ran with it. Yes, I, I can say so. Uh, it's <laughs> no, How no, old you, were you, you when you you? you?
2: you were always very uh, supportive, I, I must say that. And, and you really did give me uh, so much responsibility. As a, <laughs> as a, I, uh, th- it was a sink or swim moment, let me tell yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> But um, to, uh, we're getting close to the end. Uh, I, I have two final questions. One, um, sort of a different question, but I think um, an important one, uh, especially for those young couples out there. You, you've been an incredibly busy uh, guy for the last forty years, but so is your lovely wife, Jan. And uh, you know, she's been on tons of boards. You've had these big jobs, but you all have also raised three wonderful sons and uh, seem to be uh, wonderfully happy as a couple. What? What? <laughs> what advice would you have for uh, <laughs> uh, do, do, we, do we need to talk later? or? <laughs> uh, no, but honestly, I mean, I've always that's probably
0: been how it's worked, you know, <laughs> yeah, because right. we've been so busy, yeah. you know. <laughs> so no, the real pro- test I, begins now. That outbreak. actually probably is a factor, is it, because we've both been so involved in the community. I think that that does mean that you're not focused on every little thing. And, and so uh, that does help. We also had a great nanny Kathy Griffin who worked with us for decades uh, with the kids and and uh, we, but you know we hope we've raised our kids as uh, people to be involved in their communities and in the world that world part they took too seriously <laughs> yes because we have one we have one living in Hong Kong one just got back after a decade in China and Korea and and the thirds mm-hmm. in Chicago but and, and our daughters-in-law are both Asians, uh, the two, two daughters-in-law we have. So, you knowing in truth, I mean, they, I guess we raised them to be citizen, citizens of the world. We just didn't expect them to listen to us. <laughs> you know, they did.
2: Well, I have one last question before we'll uh, start the Q&A with the audience. I'm sure they're chomping at the bit. Uh, and that question is, if this is a true exit interview, Dave, uh, as you reflect on your many years of dedicated service to Northeast Ohio,
0: how do you want to be remembered? As a citizen of Cleveland.
2: I like that, ladies and gentlemen. Dave Abbott. <laughs> Thank
3: you.
1: We're about to begin the audience Q and A. We welcome questions from all City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream or radio broadcast on 90.3 Ideastream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it to at the City Club. You can also text questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And our staff will do their best to work your questions into our program. May we have the first question, please? Hi, Dave. Hi, Randy. Hi. You may not recall, but I do, when you first became executive director at the Gun Foundation, Dave, you commented to me that among your concerns was that you would never hear the truth again. I wondered if you might comment, well, first, was that true? It doesn't seem from the video that anyone held <laughs> back telling you what they thought about you. Uh, but if in how the power dynamic between funder and grantee has evolved, and you might include major big donors, do those who have the money hear the truth?
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's, that is a big issue, and it's still a big issue. It's always, It's an eternal issue when there is... Uh, wealth and people seeking it, and that's just uh, the way it is. But my argument and my point to you, Amy, was that uh, I worried about it because I worried that we and I would not make decisions as well without hearing the truth. And so we've done a couple of things. I mean, I think our style at the Foundation has always been of a sort that we hope builds confidence and trust and mutual respect and a willingness to be candid uh, I we know it's imperfect but we try and doing that just by how it's like to meet with us and where we meet with people and all of that and our staff uh, I think are good practitioners of that but we know that that's still that power dynamic still exists so one thing that we started doing uh, fairly early in my tenure was I came across this organization called the Center for Effective Philanthropy based in Boston that does a very extensive survey of our grantees anonymously and it's, it's really extensive and it not only gets information from them, but also it's comparative and compares us to a lot of other foundations uh, to give us candid feedback so that people know what they're telling us is anonymous and they can be truthful and uh, we take it very seriously. Now it's still mostly positive, but not entirely, and we take very seriously, especially the criticism, and we've done everything from eliminating a program area to rebuilding the reception desk in our office to make it more welcoming, Uh, and a lot of other stuff where we, because we do take seriously what the people we work with think about us and that relationship, because they are doing the work we care about. You know, it's, it's not us. We're just writing checks. Now, we do engage with people. We spend a lot of time working with people and offering what we hope is valuable participation in that process, but it's really the organizations, the nonprofits, that are doing the work that we want to see done in the world. And if they're not telling us what they really feel, whether it's, you know, why the hell did you do that, or, you know, why don't you return my phone call, or whatever it might be, you know, then we're not going to be as good as we want to be. And so uh, those are ways we try to get the truth, Amy. We still know, and then we are, I would say this too, we maintain a, a perennial consciousness of that dynamic. You know, we just don't pretend that it's not there and pretend that people are always telling us, you know, what they really think. They will start with that with me next month. But, you know, <laughs> until then, I'm, I'm still conscious of it. <laughs> That's right. You have a question over
4: here. Good afternoon, Dave. Ray Leach with Jumpstart. And on behalf of all the entrepreneurs in Northeast Ohio, you know, I want to thank you for your leadership and uh, the support of the Gun Foundation. But my question really is something that you hadn't commented on quite yet, and that is you've been, uh, and the Gun Foundation, has been an incredible leader around regionalism. And the Fund for Economic Future in particular has been a catalytic uh, collaboration that supported economic development, certainly in the city and in the county, but also in the region. I'd be curious if you could share with the audience what the biggest lessons you've learned uh, as it relates to the Fund for Economic Future and the success that it's generated and the challenges perhaps it's faced. And the last thing is maybe a comment about two tomorrows, which I think has been one of the most impactful Um, messages brought to the community particularly over the last four years
0: well I actually hate regionalism (laughs) at least I hate the word I I, it's just you know it sounds like a disease or something uh, (laughs) and uh, we're not very good as a place at regionalism or thinking regionally which is all it really means Uh, it does not mean regional government it does not you know mean uh, wiping out all the uh, municipalities not that I wouldn't, but uh, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> but uh, it just means working together on a geographic basis that reflects the way the global economy treats us. Uh, the global economy is made up of a whole bunch of regions. There's no city of Cleveland economy. There's no Cuyahoga economy. There's no not even a state of Ohio economy, and you know, that we are regions competing. And so if we're going to compete in a smart and effective way, we need to pull together as a regional team. And that's imperfect always because it's it's so complicated when you get all these municipalities and uh, the diversity and the complexity and the the political divisions and everything that get in the way. But we still have to do it. And we are doing it. Whether we're doing it effectively or not is another question, but we are doing it. Whatever it is we're doing to behave in a regional economy, that's our competition. That's our team on the playing field. Maybe we're running smart plays, maybe we're not. But the point of smart regionalism is simply recognizing that reality and pulling together as effectively as possible, and that is a continually – Evolving and reevaluated process. The Fund for Economic Future was philanthropy's effort now, almost 20 years ago, to simply step into what we saw as a vacuum of leadership on the issues of our economy. And you may remember the quiet crisis that was uh, telling us how bad things were going back then, and thought we ought to try this to at least see if we can make a difference. And I believe the fund has made a difference. Uh, what it has done over time is has evolved and should and will continue to evolve, but the uh, the work of thinking regionally, and thinking as a team that includes everybody and has everybody in mind with the outcomes of what our economy generates, uh, has to continue. The two tomorrows, which was uh, it's now about three years old, I think. Um, is a statement of a a sort of restatement of what the fund held most important. And it elevated uh, the racial equity issues in our region even more so than we had before because it was apparent that what was happening not just here, but nationally, was not attending to those issues, to put it mildly, and that we had to deal more systemically with the economy and not just with the, you know, the individual or or personal expressions of racism. And that failing to do that was hurting all of us economically, set justice aside for a minute, set altruism aside for a minute. Just think in terms of economic self-interest that uh, we were shooting ourselves in the foot and still are to too much an extent. And so uh, I feel good about what the fund has done But there's, who knows what the future holds, but that form of collaboration, if you got rid of the fund tomorrow, you'd have to recreate some new form of philanthropic collaboration, in my view, in order for philanthropy to live up to its role, to deal with all the sectors, to advance what we care about. That's all it really is, but I I think the fund has done a lot and added a lot of value by uh, bringing to scale organizations like Jumpstart and others. Uh and what they have done. Uh but it's it's done much more than that, and there's much more work to be done. Dave, this question uh comes from via text from a I think a former colleague on the Bicentennial Commission. Do you consider Baywatch on the Cuyahoga, done for the Bicentennial, to be your greatest achievement? And if not, <laughs> what could possibly top it? Okay, now this has to have come from Ann <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yes, Baywatch on the Cuyahoga, for those of you who remember, and I would bet Randy and Sherry are probably the only ones in the room who do, uh, that was a SeaWorld production that was done on the, back when we had SeaWorld in Northeast Ohio, and done on the Cuyahoga River during the daytime of the great uh, three-day party down in the flat. So it was a, a water show. It was, yes, it was... Uh, It's pretty much been downhill for me since then. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Ann.
2: Well, it was important to
3: Ann, obviously. (laughs) Uh, Well, this one won't be quite so light. The tension between the minority community and the police is not only in Cleveland, it's all over the country. What can you tell us that would give us some optimism that with the new... Uh, amendment to the police review in Cleveland that there might be some relief, some modification, some improvement in minority community and police relations, and a better understanding or view on the part of the police towards their role in the minority community?
0: Well, I may be out of my depth on this one, but the Uh, It's clear that an element of the relationship is a lack of trust, a big element, and I am hopeful that the new reform measure that was adopted, and uh, and I want to point out that I live in the city of Cleveland and voted for it, uh, will provide mechanisms by which trust can be enhanced and restored and that uh, by giving a citizen-based commission authority to make actual decisions around discipline and giving uh, citizens who are aggrieved and victims uh, a sense that justice representing them has been achieved, that that can go a long way toward restoring trust. It won't happen overnight and it won't happen uh, perfectly but once that has begun, then I am hopeful that a kind of snowball effect will occur and that the trust will become mutual and that if the justice that is enacted is viewed as fair and as uh, not arbitrary and, it, and it of course must be those things, then I would hope that the trust will be reciprocated and that over time that relationship of trust Uh, which is so fundamental to to policing and having people feel that it's worthwhile, uh, can be achieved. It is by no means done, not even begun really, and uh, the proof will be in the pudding. But that's, when I went to the ballot box, that's what I was hoping and that's still what I hope.
4: Uh, Tom Tom? Barron, City Club member and uh, former uh, reporter at uh, Channel 3. Putting on your... uh, couple of hats here uh, both as a former reporter and now as a guy who dispenses money to important and worthwhile causes. Uh, the foundation has just made a, um, a contribution donation to sustain something called what the Marshall
0: the Marshall Plan
4: is your Marshall Project is, uh, is uh, greater coverage of the justice system Uh, Given the decline in the quantity and quality of journalism and uh, the foundation's commitment to advancing democracy and the key role that journalism plays in that, uh, do you see the uh, role of foundations increasing in uh, coming up with ways to sustain and encourage alternative and independent journalism?
0: Probably. in addition to what we did to uh, what will launch the Marshall Project in Cleveland, the Marshall Project has been around for a while doing uh, justice reform reporting, and they've won a couple of Pulitzers for their work. The, uh, some other commun- foundations in the community have put up money to, in partnership with the American Journalism Project to launch a kind of more general purpose newsroom in Cleveland. We haven't yet decided uh, whether to be a part of that, but it's still, on the, it's still a possibility. Uh, both of those are examples of how foundations can support journalism, in addition to things like IdeaStream, which we have long supported, as have others. But my fear in all of that is whether it's sustainable, because it's expensive and it's new for philanthropy. This is not something that historically foundations have funded because we didn't need to. The advertising process and uh, revenue sustained newspapers and journalism generally. And it worked pretty well for a very long time, but the Internet killed it. And so now we are faced with diminished uh, capacity in local journalism. And we're really talking here about locally focused journalism that does the kind of work that we as a community need to see done that holds politicians and people in power to account for their behavior. And um, what I don't know yet is whether there is the appetite and the will among foundations in Northeast Ohio to put up not just money to launch something, but to keep it going long term. Because I, uh, I hate it when foundations, and they do this often, Um, you know, exercise uh, attention deficit disorder and they'll put something, money into something because it's a shiny new thing and then a few years later decide, well, we're not going to do that anymore and move on to something else. Uh, That's just not responsible behavior on something like this. The community needs journalism. Is philanthropy prepared to make the long-term investment? That's still an open question. Karen Snyder. I am the Ohio Regional Director for Second Act. We are a nonprofit that uses theater to address substance use disorder. And I have a general question about um, applying for grants for foundations. What is your advice um, when nonprofits continue to get denied from foundations? What's your advice for nonprofits to, to keep moving forward and to applying again? Uh, well, first of all, you need to do your homework. Uh, any, f- any nonprofit does before applying to make sure that the foundation you're thinking about going to funds the kind of work you do. And then, you know, how does it compare to other things in that area that they also fund? Is, is it duplicative? Is it, you know, different in some way? Or what might it be? And then talk to the foundation before submitting an application. Try to have a conversation to find out if it is something that is likely to be funded or not. If so, why? What might you modify? How might you change things? I mean, there are a number of things to do, but at the end of all that, there's still no guarantee that you'll get funded because unfortunately, every foundation is faced with more requests than there are dollars available. And so priorities must be set and, and tough judgments made in order to just for us to do our job and uh, we wish that were not so, but it is. So it's a matter of developing, you know, doing homework, trying to develop a proposal that meets the needs and the goals of, a found- of any particular foundation. You don't want to contort yourself to fit their needs, and you don't want to do it one way for one foundation and another way for uh, a different foundation. But uh, that's really about the best advice that I can offer.
1: Hi Dave. Hi Randy. My name is Emma Kopp. I work at the Cleveland Foundation but I am also a fellow Denisonian and there's a cohort of Denisonians here today um, as well as other liberal arts grads. I see an Oberlin grad among others. Um, So I was just wondering if you could speak to your liberal arts background and if that prepared you for the variety of positions you held um, during your professional career. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. I'm a big advocate of uh, liberal arts education because what it really teaches you is a process of inquiry and investigation and analysis and, uh, and communication around issues. And so uh, that's I- invaluable and it's been invaluable in every uh, position that I've held. The uh, you know I, I, st- I went and got a journalism degree and a law degree after my liberal arts education, and they both also proved useful, but uh, in many respects, both are simply uh, more specific, precise application of a liberal arts approach and how you uh, apply yourself to a problem or an issue to understand it and then to try to communicate it or solve it or whatever. And um, so yeah, I'm a a big fan of a liberal arts education and uh, love my time at Denison.
3: Uh, You mentioned
4: uh, citizens of Cleveland. It's the second time I've heard you say that uh, during your retirement tour around town. (laughs) Randell asked the question about folks retiring at the United Way and Metro Health and Tri-C and that new leadership. Could you talk more about where you see folks that want to be citizens of Cleveland who aren't yet at that part of their career, so those that are leaving the fellowship and want to be engaged in the civic realm of Cleveland but don't have either the position in town but have the ambition to be part of that voice that changes Cleveland uh, and Northeast Ohio?
0: There are a multitude of ways for people to, to do that, and I'm a big advocate of it. That uh, One thing I tell almost everybody is to work on a political campaign. It doesn't have to be a, a candidate, it could be an issue, uh, but you know, whatever you happen to believe in, if there's a candidate who reflects that, and uh, the, every candidate needs help, uh, whether it's, going door-to-door, door or doing mailings. They, yeah, I they guess they still do mailings, and, uh, you know, and, no, they do, yeah, they do. and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, raising money, there are any number of things you can do. It's an important thing, uh, not just for the individual, but it's important for our democracy and for our society to be involved in that way, and you also learn a tremendous amount in a political campaign, and from my experience at least if you're good and you show up and you do what you say you're going to do you can go from you know a volunteer to practically running the thing in no time because there is just an insatiable need for people who are not full of baloney and who do what they say they're going to do and that's just one way but volunteering with civic organizations every organization needs help volunteer get involved put yourself out there and uh, it's the same way there too, that if you are good and you do what you say you're gonna do and you're not somebody who just you know, said something and then doesn't follow through, uh, you're gonna advance quickly and you'll find yourself being engaged with the community and it will open up doors that you never even imagined existed. And so there's no shortage of opportunities for you, John, or others <laughs> to, uh, to pursue that. And, I, and I, we, we need it. It's, uh, it's what uh, our society and our community need to be made of.
2: Amen.
1: Today at the City Club, we have been listening to Dave Abbott's exit interview with Randy McShepherd. Today's forum is the Norman A. Sugarman Memorial Forum on Philanthropy in America, as well as the James S. Lipscomb Memorial Fo- Forum on the Philanthropic Spirit in Community Leadership. We welcome guests at tables hosted by the Center for Community Solutions, the Cleveland Foundation, the Cleveland Transformation Alliance, Cleveland Votes, College Now of Greater Cleveland, Fund for Our Economic Future, and that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Dave Abbott and Randy McShepard, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. This forum is now adjourned.
3: For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
0: Production and distribution of City Club Forums on Ideastream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.
3: For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
4: Production and distribution of City Club Forums on Ideastream Public Media
0: are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland, Incorporated.